More than a hundred years before Alice and Thomas Arden were born, English author Geoffrey Chaucer wrote a poem, The Parliament of Fowls, one of the first known references to Valentine's Day as a day to celebrate romantic love. The poem uses the metaphor of a female eagle who is deciding which of the three male eagle suitors to accept as her own. Chaucer's version of English is different from our own, so this is a mildly updated translation of the poem's beautiful opening lines on love. The life so short, the lessons so long to learn, the attempt so hard, so sharp the victory, the fearful joy that slips away in turn, all this mean I by love. Chaucer's poem sparked a new understanding of Valentine's Day, a day that was meant to celebrate the goodness of love between two people, a day that in 1551 was celebrated in Feversham, England, with a lively town fair and murder most foul. This is A Killing in Kent, a podcast on the fascinating life and confounding death of Thomas Arden of Feversham. Alice Arden was inflamed in love with a man who wasn't her husband. But at that time, she had few options if she wanted to live openly with her lover, Richard Mosby. But did that excuse Alice from conspiring to murder her husband? The authorities in Feversham didn't think so. Alice's guilt was easy to see. The murder weapon, a bloody knife, was found outside her house because a servant failed to throw the evidence down a well. There were footprints in the snow between Alice's house and the site where Thomas's body was dumped. And the two motives of love and money which united Alice and Mosby. Shortly after Arden's body was discovered, Mosby confessed the whole murder plot and so he and all his co-conspirators were apprehended, arraigned, and put in prison. Well, not everyone, but we'll get to that in a minute. Mosby was condemned and put to death a month after Arden was killed. On March 14th, Mosby and his sister were hanged at Smithfield in London. Interest in the case was high, so much so that one of the pieces of historical evidence we have of the case is the diary of a London merchant named Henry Machen, who attended the event and recorded the details. Michael, Arden and Alice's servant, was hanged in chains at Feversham. A maid was also burned there, pitifully bewailing Alice for bringing her to a bad end, saying she would never forgive her. That maid was not the only person who went to their death cursing Alice's name, while Alice was in prison awaiting her death, she accused a man named Bradshaw of being one of her confederates. You may not remember Bradshaw's name, and that's because he really didn't have anything to do with the conspiracy. Early in the story, he brought Alice a letter from Green, updating her on the state of the plot to kill Arden in London. He didn't know the contents of the letter and tried to prove his innocence in the matter, asking the other conspirators if they had ever had any conversation with him, and they all said no, 
but the letter from Green to Alice was shown in court, and Bradshaw was sentenced to die. And what of Green? Green escaped capture for a few years, but eventually was arrested and hanged somewhere between Ospring and Boughton. Black Will, the hired killer, was burned in Flushing. But his partner, George Shakebag, was luckier. He fled Feversham and was never heard of again. The play has him taking sanctuary somewhere across the Thames. The painter, Clark, was also not captured, but maybe that's for the best. After all, the poison Alice put in Arden's broth didn't actually do much, and Alice didn't even use the poison crucifix whose beams, supposedly, would have killed Arden just by looking at it. Well, Alice? What happened to Alice? Alice was arrested with the others, and given Mosby's confession of the whole murder plot, She's condemned to die. While in prison, Alice Arden had plenty of time to think about her crime. We don't know exactly how she spent that time. In the play, after Alice is caught, she claims that she wants to focus on her eternal judgment and meditate upon my Savior Jesus Christ, whose blood must save me for the blood I shed. That doesn't exactly sound like Alice. But even in Hollinshed, it reads that Alice says, Oh, the blood of God help, for this blood I have shed. Yes, we do have evidence that she and Arden regularly attended church, but she also regularly cheated on her husband. In the play, Alice declared that she loves Mosby and is tied to Arden only by marriage. Love is a god, she says and marriage is but words. She swore an oath to Arden, but, as she says, oaths are words, and words are wind, and wind is mutable. In the play, after Arden dies, Alice begs for forgiveness with these lines. Forgive me, Arden, I repent me now. In heaven I'll love thee, though on earth I did not. Now none of us can know what the future holds, especially what happens to us after we shuffle off this mortal coil. But I don't think that a 16th century audience would guess that Alice had much chance of passing into the gates of heaven. What we do know is that Alice was condemned to death and burned at Canterbury on March 24th. Why burned, you may ask? Because what she was accused of is petty treason, According to York University scholar Shelley Gavigan, the English law of petty treason covered the murder of a husband by his wife, or, say, a master by a servant. The reason it's a form of treason is based on the idea that a wife is supposed to be obedient and loyal to the head of the household, her husband. Gavigan explains that in the period from 1351 to 1858, quote, a woman accused of killing her husband was liable to be indicted not for willful murder, but for the aggravated offense of petty treason, and, until 1790, she faced public execution by burning if convicted. So, Alice was publicly burned, which feels like it should be the end of the story. Except for one thing. The Hollinshed Chronicle makes note of a very strange phenomenon. Something peculiar happened 
perhaps otherworldly, at the place on the old abbey lands where Arden's body was dumped. The outline of his body was visible on the ground for two years after he died. Hollinshed writes, No grass grew where his body had touched. Strangers came to see the print of his body on the ground in the field. The memory of Thomas Arden haunting the land that meant so much to him. So who owned that land after Arden died? According to Thomas Arden's will, his estate was meant to be distributed to various Feversham charities. There was also a provision that every year, on the anniversary of his death, a sermon would be preached in his memory. According to British historian Sir Lionel Cust, the will was contested by Margaret Arden, Alice's, and maybe Thomas's, daughter. The sermon was no problem, and it was preached as directed in the will for several years. But as for the financial aspect, Margaret was successful in contesting the will. Margaret was only 13 years old when her parents died. What happened to her? We know from the History of Parliament Online that later that year, Sir Thomas Cheney, the well-connected Sheriff of Kent, was given custody of Margaret until her maturity. Margaret later married a man named John Bradburn of Feversham, and they had a son named Nicholas. And perhaps that is the end of the story. Except for the curse. There are some who say there is a curse that falls on the owners of the Abbey lands in Feversham. It starts with Thomas Arden, who is murdered by his wife. Eventually, Sir Lionel Cust explains, the land went to a man named Sir George Saunders, who was named Earl of Feversham. He had two sons, and sadly the older one was murdered by the younger one, and then the younger one was hanged for the murder. Then, in 1910, the main residence on the Abbey lands, Lee's Court, which is still owned by descendants of the Saunders family, was destroyed by fire. So is the estate still cursed? It doesn't seem like it. Lee's court is rebuilt and doing great. The property is directed by the Countess Saunders, who has managed the estate since the death of her husband, Henry George Herbert, the fifth Earl Saunders, in 1996 of cancer. The Countess Saunders, who was born Phyllis Kane, is actually American by birth. The Lee's court estate encompasses about 7,000 acres, including farming of food, such as winter wheat and peas, as well as non-food crops. Lee's Court continues to hold their traditional pheasant and partridge shoot and invites the Kent Archaeological Society to hold digs on the estate. According to the Kent County Council website, a 1965 excavation of the site of the abbey revealed glazed tiles, carved stonework, and window glass. In 2017, metal detectorists discovered a trove of prehistoric middle to late Bronze Age metalwork on the Lees Court estate, including fragments of bowls and other vessels. I like the idea that the estate that used to belong to Thomas Arden still has secrets to reveal to people who seek to discover them. Understanding historical artifacts requires exploring their context. So, in our final episode, we're going to dig into three other types of artistic documentation related to the case of Alice and Arden. We'll learn about the woodcut image depicting Arden's death, hear about the song that swept England, 
and find out more about the puppet show version of the story. Perhaps by exploring these artistic representations of Arden's death, we can come to better understand why people across time and nations have been captivated by the sensational details of true crime. Thank you for listening to A Killing in Kent, The Fascinating Life and Confounding Death of Thomas Arden of Feversham. I'm your host, Diane Rayo Harmon. This show is produced by Jeff Harmon, with theme music by Harold Bryce Harmon.